Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been in Hebrews chapter 11 for several weeks. And I'm going to say something you probably never thought you'd hear me say. I think we're going to finish chapter 11 tonight. Well, okay, we can stretch it out if that's what you want. Now we're going to start in verse 30. Uh, let me bring you up to speed and remind you of some things that are important for us to, to uh, take notice of. Chapter 11 is, uh, is Paul's uh, expounding on his desire expressed in chapter 10 for them to go back to when they used to hang tough. He, um, uh, he says to them in chapter 10 and verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days. That means in the beginning days of the church, what we know of is the early uh, chapters of the book of Acts. In which you, after you were illuminated, that means after you came to the knowledge of the truth, you endured a great fight of afflictions. They've stopped doing that. They've turned back to the, to the law of Moses. They've, they've turned loose of some things. And he tells them further on in the chapter that the just shall live by faith. And chapter 11 is all examples of the just living by faith. And so he, he identifies a couple of things in the beginning of chapter 11 that, um, uh, that faith is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith sees beyond just the circumstance and the hardships that they're experiencing or that you and I will experience and holds fast to something that goes beyond just what you can see in the circumstances. And he talks about these things through this faith. The elders obtained a good report. That word good report literally means approval of God. Now, it's important for us to make a distinction about uh, faith. There's two kinds of faith. There's saving faith and living faith. Saving faith is faith toward God. Living faith is faith toward his word that other people see. It's not saving faith that gives you a testimony. It's living faith that gives you a testimony. And so when Paul talks about faith, he's talking about living faith here in chapter 11. That's why a lot of people have a hard time uh, reconciling some things that Paul said, like to the Romans, about uh, Abraham being justified by faith and works. And James, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. James chapter 2 says Abraham was justified not just by faith, but by works. What are they talking about? Well, James is talking about living faith. Romans chapter 4, Paul's talking about saving faith. And so there's no, there's no contradiction here. He's giving a great, uh, goes into some detail about a list of people who lived their faith. Now let's pick up in verse 30. Paul has, uh, has gone through uh, several different time periods. Up to this point, he's, uh, he's taking things in a chronological order. And he gets to, uh, to um, Joshua. And then he talks about Rahab when they entered into the promised land. So we'll pick up in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Now, whose faith is he talking about? Well, we have to conclude that he's talking about Joshua's faith. But he could also include in that Israel's faith. Because remember in the, the first chapter of the book of Joshua, in the Old Testament, God speaks to Joshua and says, okay, here's how you can make yourself successful. Here's how you can make your way prosperous. Joshua 1.8, stick to the word that I gave Moses and be courageous. Then the people speak up to Joshua and say, be of good courage. Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. Now, that's the first time Israel has ever said they'd follow their leader. The generation that came out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, they're complaining the whole time. They get to the promised land and uh, rebel against God, rebel against God's plan. And as a result, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Folks, running from God never works. It just costs you time in the wilderness. And most of those people died in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua are the only two of that generation that did not. Running from God never works. 
Find me anybody that's ever run from God that's happy about it. It's a guarantee for, for misery in life. Well, that's what they did. That's what their, their forefathers or their, their, the previous generation did. And these are the children that have been raised by those unbelieving parents. So you got to conclude that Joshua's position is kind of iffy. They're saying, yeah, be of good courage. Whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. Joshua's saying, really? You think so? Well, Joshua's first task is to take them through the, re- the uh, Jordan River. Now, the, um, uh, the children of Israel have, uh, have camped on the other side of the Jordan River for a number of years. They've dwelt in this land. As a matter of fact, when the time comes to pass over the Jordan River and go into the Promised Land, two, uh, one and a half tribes don't go. One and a half tribes stay back on the other side. And they said, well, we like it here. We built a home here and we like it here. And so they asked, uh, first talk to Moses about it and then later to Joshua. They said, we want to stay on the other side. We want, we just want to stick it out here. But they didn't want to stay there because it was better. They wanted to stay there because they were afraid to fight on the other side of the river. And so those, those two tribes, literally one and a half tribes, but both tribes are pretty much known for this, are, have been known throughout the Jewish history as the coward tribes. But the time comes for them to cross the Red Sea, or across, uh, excuse me, cross the Jordan River. Now, Paul, in writing about uh, some of these things to the Corinthians, said that when they passed through the Red Sea coming out of Egypt, that was a type of salvation. They were baptized unto Moses, baptized into Christ unto Moses in the Red Sea. Well, if passing through the Red Sea was a type of salvation, then what's passing over the Jordan River? It's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because, see, folks, you can get saved and still spend time in the wilderness. But it's when you get baptized in the Holy Ghost that you enter into the promises and the blessings of God. The land of Canaan, the promised land, represents everything that belongs to us as believers in Christ. In other words, everything that Jesus paid for when he died for us on the cross. Not just the entrance into the family of God. Thank God for salvation. If that was all that we could have from what Jesus did for us, that'd be great. But that's not all he did. It's the blessing of prosperity, it's the blessing of healing, it's the blessing of peace in every area of our life, it's victory, it's God's assurance that whatever we put our hand to will prosper. Those are the things that the, that the promised land represent through the stories that we have in the Old Testament. So when uh, Joshua leads them across the Jordan River, the Jordan River parts just like the Red Sea parted. And it tells us, uh, gives us some details about... Uh, um, the Jordan River parting that, that really we don't have about the Red Sea. The Bible says about the Red Sea that the waters congealed and heaped upon themselves. That's all we know. Well, what does that mean? The only thing I know about congealing is jello. Does that mean the water turned to jello? That's possible. The wording gives you the, gives you the opportunity to accept that as the fact. We don't know for sure, but that's what it says. But when it talks about the, the Jordan River, it says that the waters were cut off. And so, the first thing that happens is when they, the, the priests uh, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when they first put their foot into the water of the Jordan River, and it was the time of year where it was overflowing its banks, the first thing that happened was the water started peeling back. But then the waters running south continue to go. The waters recede back toward the north. And uh, tributaries, big rivers, start backing up and flooding the lands and flooding the territories. And the significance of that was even cities that were 50 miles north recognized the water is overflowing, something has stopped the river. And so word traveled as to what stopped the river. It was God. And so the children of Israel pass over the Jordan River. They go over on dry ground just like they passed through the Red Sea 40 years earlier. 
Now they're on the, the other side of the Jordan River. They're in the promised land. Then the waters come back together. The river starts flowing again. It's symbolic of once you cross the line, there is no turning back. You're in enemy territory now. Now that enemy territory contains the blessings that Jesus purchased for you. But you're going to have to take possession of them. So there is no going back. I've always been amused at people that get filled with the Holy Ghost and then decide they didn't want it after all because of the trouble that it brought and the, the things that people thought about them and said about them and stuff like that. It's kind of like, well, okay, what are you going to do now? You're in the devil's territory. Use it or not, the devil is still going to take shots at you. You better use it. Well, that's the picture that we have from Joshua taking the children of Israel over into the land of Canaan. So what happens? First thing they run into is the biggest city, biggest fortress, biggest walls, biggest obstacle that they ever face. You know, it's an amazing thing. When God takes you into the promised land, he doesn't ease you in. He throws you right in the middle of the devil's biggest problem. The devil's biggest attack. And uh, I don't know what you think about this, but uh, this was the only city. The city of Jericho was the only city that God told them to burn and not take the stuff. In other words, the city of Jericho was the tithe of the land. It was separated unto God. And one family, you remember one guy, Achan, he takes some of the stuff and buries it under his tent and stuff like that. And, and everybody finds out about it and his whole family is wiped out as a result of it. The earth swallows up and, and takes them over. It may be that the Bible is telling us, you decide this for yourself. But it may be that the Bible is telling us that one of the greatest obstacles, one of the greatest fights you're ever going to have is the, the fight of paying your tithes. Now, here's the thing about the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was the key entrance to the land of Canaan. The reason it was so fortified, the reason the walls were so high and so, so thick and all this other kind of stuff. And Jericho was a big city. Jericho was a city of about a million people. In that day, that was absolutely huge. Nineveh, you remember Joshua, uh, Jonah, it talks about how it took him two weeks to travel from one side of the city to the other. That was a city of about 700,000 people. Jericho is much bigger than that. So Jericho is huge. It was, uh, it was uh, the Las Vegas of the day. It, was, it had everything. It was known as the city of pleasure. It had everything you could possibly imagine. And it had the biggest fortified defenses of any city in the, in, in the land of Canaan, at least. We don't know too much about some of the rest of the world at that time, but certainly in the land of Canaan. So if they're going to take the land of Canaan, they have got to take the city of Jericho first. Now, how are they going to do this? Well, you would think that God would have a plan to scale the walls or blow up the, 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 the hole in the walls or something like that. You remember the story how God told Joshua to instruct the people to keep their mouth shut for seven days and walk around the city. And on the seventh day to walk around seven times, and when he gave the command for them to shout. Now, folks, them being quiet was just as important. Being quiet in the beginning was just as important as shouting at the end. Because, again, these are people that have been taught by their parents who were world champion unbelievers. Their natural inclination is to start worrying about their situation. That's what they learned from their parents. And they did that for 40 years in the wilderness. That's all they've ever known. So the command to keep their mouth shut was in, incredibly important. So that's what they do. 
They walk around the wall one time each day for six days. The seventh day, they walk around seven times. And Joshua gives the command to shout. The Bible says that the walls fall, fell flat. Verse 30. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Old Testament says they fell flat. What that means is they fell flat in their place. The earth opened up and the walls went down. The walls didn't fall over. The walls were 100 feet tall and 50 feet thick. If the walls had fallen over, they'd still have a 50-foot barrier to cross. The walls fell flat. The earth opened up and the walls went down like an elevator. It disappeared. I wonder what Jericho thought about that. Well, they went through and they took the city. Now, notice the Bible says it was by faith that that happened. One of the things that we need to keep in mind, and you'll see it some of the, in some of the other uh, folks and situations that, uh, that Paul mentions in a couple of verses, we seem to have the idea that, uh, that God only uses natural things. Like, for example, if there's, a, if there's an army, then God's going to cause our army to outnumber their army. Or if there's some kind of financial problem, then God's going to cause us to have the money to overcome the financial problem. But, folks, God's not limited by natural things. God can, can, can defeat any problem, can overcome any problem in your life, regardless of resources. What resources did they have? Faith. I would submit to you that a shout won't even bring a wall down like that. The only resource they had was a spiritual resource, and that was the, the resource of faith. And that's the whole point that Paul is trying to make here. He's trying to say, don't worry about your circumstances. Quit looking entirely at your circumstances. Now, of course, we keep our eyes on things that are going on. We want to, uh, faith examines the situation. The ten spies went into the land to figure out what the situation was in the land. Well, that was part of faith, too. Joshua sent two spies into the land. They're the ones that found Rahab the harlot, who the next verse talks about. Faith always examines the situation. Faith doesn't just put blinders on and say, well, I'm going to ignore everything and just jump out there without some kind of foundation. That's not real faith. Faith examines the circumstances and then says, yeah, and here's what God said. Now, do you think anybody in the group, Joshua included, knew what was going to happen to those walls? Other than that they're going to come down? Did anybody have it figured out how the walls were going to come down? Anybody have it figured out that the earth is going to open up and swallow the walls? Well, if so, they were clairvoyant because God didn't tell them that. My point is very simply this. Faith can make the impossible happen even when the impossible is beyond what you imagine. Verse 30, or verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now, turn back with me to the Old Testament. Here's one I want to look at just real quickly. We won't spend much time on it, but I want you to see one thing that happened here. In Joshua chapter 2, this is when Joshua sends two spies into the, the city of Jericho or toward the city of Jericho to spy out the land. They come to the, the walls of the city. They, they sneak in. And as a result, they, they're looking around to see what's going on. Now, as I said before, the city of Jericho was a million people. There is one person in this million people that has respect unto God. I'm not going to say believes in God, although that may be an accurate statement, but has respect unto God. Everybody else is idol worshipers. One person out of a, of a, uh, out of a million, and these two spies find her. I, I, call me crazy, I think God was in that somehow. 
And notice what it says. It says that she, that uh, they found the harlot Rahab. Now, um, there's a there's a misunder misconception about Rahab being a harlot, because one of the words that's used, not in every case, but one of the words that's used for Rahab has a a, a prefix to the word that means former. So when the spy, the two spies find her with this house on the wall, the house is literally an inn, what we would know of as a hotel. Now, it's possible that it was house prostitution. We don't know. But if it was, she's running the house. She's the madam instead of a working girl. But that may not even be the case either. It may be that she's a former harlot, and now she's just simply running an inn. By the language, you can't tell. We do know that at least she was a harlot at one time. But I think a lot of people kind of have the wrong idea about uh, about Rahab and, and where she was and the situation she was in at the time the two spies come. Now, you remember what happens. The two spies come to her inn, and, uh, and, and she knows who they are. She figures out who they are. They know Everybody knows the children of Israel are on the other side of uh, the Jordan River. The Jordan River parts, and now they're camped on their side, the land of Canaan side of the Jordan River. Everybody knows they're there. And so, um, uh, so when these two spies come to Rahab, Rahab says something very interesting. And she identifies what the, what the attitude of the city is, and then she identifies her own attitude toward this. Joshua chapter 2, verse uh, 8. First of all, she hid them, and then she came back to them. And before they were laid down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. She's telling what she thinks and she's telling or she, what she knows and she's telling what everybody else in town thinks too. She says, everybody's afraid of you and I know that God's given you this land. Why? Verse 10. Or, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. Folks, that was 40 years ago. Now, if you remember, this is... Part of the reason that the, t- the 10 of the 12 spies 40 years earlier wouldn't obey God and take the land. They said the people are too great. They are, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. The walls are big and, and the people have great defenses and all that kind of stuff. These folks inside the promised land have been afraid of them for 40 years. They've probably been wondering for 40 years, why haven't they come get us yet? I doubt if they knew anything about the 10 spies or what happened there. But they've been wondering ever since they came out of uh, Israel, came out of Egypt and the Red Sea parted for them. They've been wondering, what are these people waiting for? We know this is where they're coming. So they've been afraid of them. They're still afraid of them. Probably even more so now that they've seen the Jordan River part. And she says, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And here's another event that made them afraid. And what you did under the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan Sihong and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. That was 15 years before. These people have been sitting in the promised land, wondering why in the world Israel hadn't come and taken them captive. And all the time Israel, at least they started off being afraid of the people in the land. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, 40 years ago and 15 years ago, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. Now, here she's going to say something for herself, not for the city. She says, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heaven above. Now, Lord your God literally is Elohim. 
You're saying, we recognize, I recognize, I know this. This is her profession. This is as close as you can get to confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior under the Old Covenant. Certainly that wasn't possible, but she's saying, I believe in your God. Because I heard about the Red Sea and I heard about what you guys did to the king of the Amorites. I believe in your God. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. And then she makes a deal. She says, now I want you to take me with you. When you do come into the land, everybody knows you're coming. When you do come into the land, make sure that I go with you. I believe in your God. She's the only one of a million people that does. And so they come up with a plan. She winds up letting them down with a rope. It would be very unusual. If you look back at some of the the, uh, the customs of the day and stuff like that, for her to have a rope indicates that she might have had a rope-making business because people didn't have ropes like this. But she has a rope that she lets them down through a window to the bottom of the wall. And remember, this wall is 100 feet tall, and her house is on top of it. So she's got a rope that goes all the way to the bottom, lets them out, and then she makes a scarlet thread that she hangs in the window that that winds up being her salvation when Israel comes uh, to take possession of the promised land. And notice what it says about all of these things. It says, by faith, Rahab. Here's her faith in action. By faith, Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. What was the sign of her faith? Where she says, I believe that your God is God. Now, Rahab becomes David's grandmother. She becomes of the line of, of, uh, uh, of Jesus. That's pretty good, number one, for a Hittite, and number two, for an ex-harlot. Now, that's one thing you're going to see in the next verses. God uses people of low estate. Now, these are the only ones that, that uh, uh, Paul specifically mentions as far as the events. And now he starts grouping everybody together. Verse 32, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David and Samuel and of the prophets. In other words, he's saying, I'm running out of time. I've got plenty more examples, but I'm running out of time. So what does he do? He mentions six people. He mentioned four of them are in the de- in the uh, era of the judges, and then two of them, David and Samuel, are in the era era of the kings. And he says of those four. Now those four are not in chronological order. He skips around on them. But something that's interesting and and in common, maybe the only thing in common of these four people that he mentions during the era of the judges is that they were men that delivered Israel during a time of great spiritual apostasy. So the ones that he mentions, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, and Samson, those were men that God used, and they were not perfect men, but he used to deliver Israel or show himself strong on behalf of Israel during a time of great spiritual dearth. When the people had turned away from God, and in many cases had turned to idol worship. Gideon's the first one he mentions. In Gideon's day, it was um, a crime not to worship Baal. Now, you remember I told you that um, two of the, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel were known as the cowardice, cowardly tribes because they wouldn't cross over the, the Jordan River? And Gideon was one of those. He was one of those of the tribe of Manasseh. They were one of the cowardly tribe. And Gideon says when the angel of the Lord appears to him, he says, I'm the least of my family who is the least of the tribe of Manasseh. In other words, I'm the coward of the cowards. 
you can't get more cowardly than me. And you remember when the Lord appears to him, he's threshing wheat in a, in a box, literally. He's trying to, trying to eke out some kind of existence when the, when the Midianites are, are oppressing the nation of Israel and have instituted Baal worship to such a degree that if you don't worship Baal, it's a crime. If you did anything to deface any of the, the images or groves to Baal, then that was a punishable, that was a crime punishable by death. So they're so far away from God, they don't even remember there is a God. And the angel appears to, to, um, uh, to Gideon and says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. He says, no, I'm not. I'm of the tribe of Manasseh. We're the coward tribe. Look at what I'm doing. I'm threshing weed in a little box, little room like this. Somebody um, used the example, it'd be like trying to play golf in a closet. It's a pretty good example. So he says, no, I'm, I'm just trying to keep from being discovered here. I'm nobody. And God keeps calling him a mighty man of valor and says what he's going to do. Now, the first thing that he gives Gideon to do is to tear down one of the groves to Baal. In other words, his first test is to do something that could cost you your life. And he does. Well, you know the story, how that he tells him to, to gather up people to go against Midian and overcome them. And God says, okay, well, that's a good group, but it's too many. Whittle them down. Finally, he whittles them down to 300 people, and he defeats a 10,000-man army of the Midianites. Again, God does not need numbers. He does not need numbers for you to win. And this was a this was an act of faith. This is what Paul says is a test or an act or or uh, an operation of faith that won approval. Well, what was the end result? The end result was it delivered Israel. The next one he makes mention of is uh, Barak. Barak is uh, his story is in Judges two. I think it's uh, Judges four. I believe it is. Anyway, uh, it's uh, his story. He's a real interesting guy because at the time that uh, that he comes along, uh, Deborah is uh, is the leader of the children of Israel. Now, Isaiah 31, I think it is, says that one of the signs of uh, a curse upon a nation is when they're led by a woman. Now, I'm not going to try to explain that in today's society or anything like that. It's it's not important. But you need to realize as far as God was concerned and what God said back then, He it, literally what he's saying is if a woman's in charge, that means the men have turned tail and run. Nothing against the woman. It's just that the men wouldn't step up and take the place that they needed to be. Well, Barak's a good example of that because Deborah, who is a prophetess, speaks to Barak and says, has God not called you to deliver Israel? Has God not called you to take 10,000 of the men of Israel and go out and defeat the king of Canaan? Jabin, I think was his name. The king of Canaan and all of his armies. And Barak says this. Barak answers and says, well, I'll go if you'll go with me. Mighty man of valor here, huh? If I can hide behind you, I'll be okay. And she says this. She makes this statement. She says, I'll go, but you've given away your honor in this. And so he goes. He delivers the children of Israel. He wins the battle, but she gets the credit for it. All because he wouldn't step up. Now, where's his act of faith? You can see this is a flawed individual. 
just like Gideon was. Where's his act of faith? His act of faith was he acted on what Deborah said by the word of the Lord, even though he wasn't willing to stand up front and lead the way that he should have. Yet God counts that as faith. Now, each one of these, remember, each one of these are an example to the Jews in Paul's day about how you can overcome the difficulties of your day just like they did theirs. Next one he makes mention of is Jephthah. I think. Oh, no, next one is Samson. Well, we know about Samson. Man, what a great guy he was. He spent all of his time being drunk and chasing prostitutes. We have the, uh, we have movies and stuff like that. You know, the stories of Samson, of Delilah, and it's been remade several different times. It's always this great big buff guy and that kind of stuff. Folks, Samson was an ordinary looking guy. If that were not the case, then people wouldn't have asked him, what's the source of your strength? They would have said, what's your workout program? <laughs> he was a normal looking guy. He was a regular, skinny, whatever looking guy, average looking guy. But he carried away city gates. He defeated a thousand people with the jawbone of a, of a donkey. I mean, this guy did superhuman stre- feats of strength when the spirit of the Lord was on him. And it was all in his hair. And you remember how Delilah deceived him to tell him, tell her what the, the source of his strength was. And she shaved his head. And then the, the Philistines came and they put his eyes out, made him a laughing stock. But you remember the end of his life. The end of his life, he was gathered together to be the, 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 the spectacle for all these mucky muck Philistines. And he asked the little boy, there were, there were thousands of people there. And he asked the little boy to take him over next to the columns of the, of the, the meeting hall, of the temple where they were in. And he was, he did that. And so he stood over there and his hair had begun to grow. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he killed more in that one event to, and, and resulted in delivering Israel than any other time in his lifetime or the total of his lifetime. What do these things mean? Paul is using these as New Testament examples that you don't have to be the best and the brightest. For God to use you. All he's looking for is faith. That's all he's looking for. Jephthah is the last one that he makes mention of. And he's a real interesting guy. Because he was an illegitimate child. Now the Bible says that an illegitimate child cannot have part of an inheritance in Israel. Can't do it. It's against the law. And the story of Jephthah, I think it's Judges chapter 11 the first thing it says of him is he's a mighty man. He's a mighty man of valor. He's probably become that way because he's had to fight all of his life. He's a fighter. But he's run off by his brethren because they impose the law on him and say, you can't have part of us. You can't have part of our inheritance. Your da- our dad may be your dad, but you were born of a prostitute. And so you can't have any part of this or anything that's going on around here. So he runs away. But then Israel gets in trouble and they said, We need that big guy that fights all the time. So they run to get him. Jephthah, long story short, Jephthah winds up delivering Israel from the Ammonites, defeating the Ammonite king, and delivering Israel. Each one of these guys put Israel back on track to follow God, but they don't stick to it. Then it makes mention of David and Samuel. Well, we know about David. David was a great guy. Now, he came from the right side of the tracks. He was a man of privilege. He was a, he was a good guy. He was known to, uh, because of his skills and his cunning and playing and things like that. David was somebody that was respected. 
But he didn't get, always do things right either, did he? Well, what faith is, is, uh, is this talking about where David is concerned? Probably his battle against the enemies of Israel. Same thing where Samuel is concerned. Before David came on the scene, Samuel was helping Saul defeat the enemies of Israel and had limited success because of Saul's disobedience. Then it makes mention of the prophets. Well, what does he mean by prophets? Well, the prophets started with Samuel and ran all the way through John the Baptist. So he's saying in all of them, he's saying I could use any one of them or every one of them for examples of faith in the, in the, uh, the face of obstacles and hindrances that are greater than the ones that you Hebrews are experiencing. Now in verse 33, he says, who through faith, talking about all of these people, who through faith subdued kingdoms. The word, the word subdued means crushed. Folks, you need to realize something. God is not a pacifist. Never has been. And since he doesn't change, he isn't now. God's all about military. He's all about armies. He's all about defending that which is right. So he said, these men, by the instruction of the Lord, by the, uh, by the plan of God, subdued or crushed kingdoms and wrought righteousness. What's God's purpose in war? To defeat evil so that righteousness can prevail. God's all about peace so that righteousness can prevail and go forth. But if that's not the case, if righteousness is not prevailing, then God's all about stamping out evil. That's true in your life too, you know. That's why Jesus said uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence or uh, suffers opposition and the violent take it by force. I think a lot of people have a misconception about walking in love. A lot of people think walking in love means you just don't create any problem for anybody, including the devil. But God expects you to make things right in your life. And that takes violence. That takes an active, operating, forceful faith. So who through faith subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's talking about Daniel in the lion's den, of course. Next, it says in verse 34, quench the violence of fire. That's talking about the three Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3. They were thrown by Nebuchadnezzar in the burning fiery furnace and weren't hurt. Escape the edge of the sword. Now, this is a time, this is talking about the times in uh, the history of Israel where God caused Israel to escape out of the hands of their enemies. So sometimes God causes you to stand up and fight and defeat your enemies other times he delivers you from their hand out of the weakness were made strong waxed valiant in fight turned to flight the armies of the aliens this is talking about in many cases it happened over and over again jehoshaphat's a good example of this where the children of israel stood their ground and their enemies began fighting against each other slaughtered each other and then ran away notice that only happened as a result of waxing valiant in fight We all want our enemies to run away, but we don't want to have to go stand out there strong in faith. It only happens when you wax valiant in fight. Turn to flight the armies of the aliens. Now he talks about women of faith. Women receive their dead raised to life again. Two examples in the Bible of this, one in Elijah's ministry ministry, and the other in Elisha's ministry. In Elijah's ministry, 1 Kings chapter 17 tells us about the woman that uh, uh, fed Elijah, sustained Elijah with the the barrel, the, the handful of meal and the little cruise of oil. 
her son died and he raised her, that son from life, back to, to life, raised him from the dead. The second time was in Elijah's, uh, Elisha's ministry in Second Kings chapter 4. You remember there was a rich woman that saw that Elisha passed by that way and so she built a room, a prophet's room on the side of her house. Well, her son died, and Elisha raised him from the dead. Both the rich woman and the poor woman, the most destitute of women and the rich woman, they stand side by side in their faith and got the same results. Again, it's showing that God doesn't care where you came from. It's all about believing him. Women receive their dead raised to life again, and others, now we don't know if these others mean women or just others in general. We think it's others in general, but I'm sure there are some women that fall into this category too. And others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. That would certainly be true of the women of Israel when um, uh, conquering, when Israel was conquered by other enemies and other, other armies. Women always get the worst of that end. Verse 36, And others had a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, both verbally and, and physical abuse. Yea, moreover, of bonds, chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned. There were many examples where the Old Testament prophets were stoned. Some of them were stoned before they even started their ministry. One guy was stoned the first time he spoke for God. Next it says they were sawn asunder. That's what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah was sawed in half. They were tempted. That means interrogated. Again, a form of torture. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. One of the ways that um, uh, the enemies of Israel, and, and sometimes even the Jews adopted this themselves, one of the means of torture that they would uh, enact upon somebody is that they would strip them of everything and then send them out into the wilderness where they were wild beasts and so forth to be killed. They wouldn't do the job themselves. They would just put some kind of mark on them so that nobody would accept them into a city and then they were left to fend for themselves out in the wild. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Literally, this means holes in the earth. We think of caves as, as like pirate caves and stuff like that. Caves in Israel are holes in the ground. You remember the, the hole they found Saddam Hussein hiding in? That's what it's talking about. It's talking about holes in the ground. And these all, having obtained a good report, this is the same good report that's spoken of, first of all, in verse 2, and then again in verse 4, where it speaks of approval. This is how they gained approval from God. Faith is the only thing that pleases God. It's the only thing that you can approve, gain approval by God through, and that is by believing in the Word and living it in your life. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now, he's talking about something specific here because most of these guys did receive promises. They did receive the end of what they were believing for. But the promise that he's talking about is the promise that you and I have experienced, and that is Jesus living inside of us. These all, having obtained a good report or approval through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us. Remember, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christianity is superior to anything in the Old Testament. Superior to the priesthood, superior to Judaism, superior to, to, uh, to Moses, superior to the law, superior to everything. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now what is it saying? It's saying their reward is dependent on the church. 
It's saying their reward will come at the time when the church is caught up into heaven, just like the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 tells us about standing before the Lord and the books are opened. The books of works, the books of works are opened. This is a preview of God's books of works. Now, let me close with this. You remember uh, who Jesus said was the greatest of the prophets? John the Baptist. Now, think about that. Why was John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets? As far as Israel was concerned, Moses was the greatest prophet. On his heels was Elijah, and on his heels was Elisha. Now, Moses was the greatest prophet because of the miracles that he did before Israel. Elijah and Elisha were in the top three because of uh, of the, th- the miracles that they did and the way that God used them. Now, there were other prophets that were considered to be of great stature. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Why? Because they were prophets that wrote. John the Baptist never did a miracle. He never wrote a word. How could John the Baptist be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? There's only one way that that's possible, and that goes back to the promise. John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets because he had the opportunity to see the Messiah that the others wrote about and spoke toward. You remember what else Jesus said? He said, there's never been a greater prophet. As a matter of fact, no one one born of man has been greater than John the Baptist because he was the forerunner of Jesus, because he saw the Messiah come. That's what made him the greatest, not because he was some great guy in himself, but because of the work that God gave him, put him in a position to see the promise fulfilled, which was Jesus coming to the earth, the Messiah coming to the earth. But then Jesus said, yet he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because that which is in you, no matter where you come from, you might be like some of these guys. Maybe you were born under the wrong circumstances. Maybe there's nothing special about you. Maybe you're not looked at as someone with great gifts or, or, or something extra to you. Doesn't matter. Look at the things God did with all of these guys and none of them had anything in that, uh, along that line. They didn't have to come from the right pedigree. They didn't have to come from the right circumstance. They didn't have to come from anything. As a matter of fact, the, the examples that he uses are, are all people that had something against them. Every one of these people had a right to say, a legitimate right to say, well, I believe God, but. I believe God, but here's my circumstance. Yeah, I trust God, but, you know, I've always had to overcome this. None of that matters with God, folks. The only thing that counts with God is faith. And he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest of the prophets. Why? Because what they prophesied toward, what they worked toward, what they illustrated and gave examples of, what some of them wrote about is that which lives inside you. All of chapter 12 is going to be about the great city of God, which is Zion, the church. Remember, that's what it said about David. Or I'm sorry, about Abraham. It said Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, literally designer and architect was God. Abraham dwelt in tents because he was looking for something from God. Well, what was he looking for? We can think of, well, he's looking for the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. That's not the city that's being spoken of, folks. The city that's spoken of again and again and again in the book of Hebrews is the life of God within us. That's the city you're part of. That's why he's going to talk about Zion. That's why he's going to talk about the the kingdom of God in chapter 12. He's going to bring them from examples of others 
intended to inspire them to hold fast and hold strong in their faith. Now he's going to tell them about who they are because Christ is in them. There's chapter 11. Amen. I wonder, I can't read this without wondering what Paul was thinking about when he wrote about those that were stoned for their testimony. I wonder if he thought about Stephen. Remember, remember Paul was standing there holding the, the coats of those who stoned Stephen. Stephen was an Old Testament, but he certainly fit this category. Paul had some things to hold him back to. He had a past that he could have said, well, God will never use me because of the things that I did. I'm lucky to be saved and I'm glad to be saved, but I guess that's all I'll ever be. He didn't let that hold him back. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind. The first and foremost thing Paul said was, I forget the past. It's the only thing the Bible ever says to you about your past. It says, forget it. And then once you forget it, you're in position to press forward to what God's called you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the examples of those normal men and women just like us who did great exploits just simply because they trusted in you and the things that you said to them. Thank you, Father, that the same thing is is available to us and even greater things because we've got the life of God in us and they didn't. We've got the power of God residing in us, and they just had it come upon them for short periods of time. Thank you, Father, that there are books of works being written about us, just like it was them. Thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to fill volumes in heaven with our works of faith. Just simply because we take your word at face value and trust in you to act on it. Thank you, Father, that that faith approves of us just like it brought them a good report. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.